invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16, as we continue to work our way through this book. The Bible has a lot to say about waiting on the Lord. As a phrase you'll come across quite a bit, I trust you're familiar if you've read your Bible, this idea of waiting on the Lord. It's a great phrase and a wonderful concept, but sometimes we might wonder what exactly that means. It's sometimes used in different contexts. But there are certain matters that are simply out of our hands. We have to realize that. And we are meant, those who are trusting in the Lord, we are meant to, in those moments, entrust ourselves to God and we're to wait upon Him, to wait for Him to intervene. Uh, we wait in faith for the Lord and for his timing. Uh, there are things that trouble us, that weigh us down, that we can't fix. And we are meant then, the, the Bible instructs us, to call out to God, to cry out to him in prayer, to bring our concerns before him, and then to wait. We await his answer to see what it is he is going to do. And if things don't necessarily turn around or turn out exactly the way that we would envision it or like it, then we further pray and further wait upon the Lord to do the necessary work in our hearts that we might be content with whatever it is that he has sent our way, that we might respond to our situation and to what God has brought to us in a God-honoring manner. We can have very legitimate and genuine needs that God doesn't always deliver us from right away. We are forced to wait upon him, to see what good he might yet bring out of it, to prevail upon him in prayer. We see this a lot in the Psalms. Psalm 25 is just one example. In verse 19, David writes, Consider how many are my foes. This is a king writing. And with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. David was waiting upon the Lord. God didn't keep all trouble from David. Sometimes the enemies were very near to his city, very near to his gates. They were very numerous. They were quite powerful. And this force, this issue of calling out to God to look to him for help and then waiting upon his answer. And it didn't always come right away. There are also many promises in Scripture that God has made, that we cling to, that we hold to, that we believe, that yet seem very slow in coming to us. God promises to sanctify all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to make us more holy. And yet how painfully slow that often feels. And it is often very grievous to the believer at how slow this is, at yet the amount of fleshliness that we still find within us. It burdens us. And so we cry out to God. We pray to him. We seek him and we wait upon him, recognizing we can't. it's not as simple as just a couple quick steps. We can't just change our own hearts. We need the Lord to do this. And so we call out to him. We pray to him. We read his word and we wait upon him. And there are promises that God defers to a later time. 
I think particularly of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious consummation of his eternal kingdom that we yet look forward to. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. It is the ultimate answer to all that ills our world. But the day tarries. The Lord has his purposes in that, but it's delayed it from our perspective. It'd be nice if it happened now, but we wait for it. We live in light of that day. And many believers, all who have died to date, believing in the Lord, have looked forward to that eternal day, but have died not yet having received that promise. But Hebrews says they died in faith, looking forward to that promise. They will yet one day be raised to join in that and to benefit from that. And so waiting on the Lord is not always an easy thing to do, but it is an unavoidable and necessary and good thing for his people to do. It is good for God's people to humble ourselves before our God and to submit to his timing and to his ways. It is good to depend upon him and express that in our prayer and in our seeking of him while we are waiting. And as we have been going through Genesis, we have come now for the last several chapters here to the story of Abraham, or Abram as he is still called. His name has not yet been changed by God. That comes in a couple chapter, in chapter 17. We've seen Abram and Sarai, who will later be called Sarah. And again, I will probably, as we talk about Sarai today, use Sarah and Sarai interchangeably. But Abram and Sarai weren't always amazing at waiting upon God and his timing waiting upon God's timing to fulfill the things that he had promised to Abram. They believed God. We have seen that. They they were those who did generally trust the Lord. They were justified by their faith. But still, living by faith continually day after day, trusting the Lord every day, is not always an easy thing to do. Waiting can be hard. One day... Trusting the Lord might seem relatively easy. We repulse temptation and whatnot with with joyfulness. But other days it can be much more difficult. The next day much harder. And we see this in Abram and Sarai. We see them take matters into their own hands on a few occasions, including Genesis 16 that we'll look at now. Now again, we're going to talk about waiting upon the Lord. When I speak about that, this idea of waiting upon the Lord, of trusting Him, of, 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 of waiting for Him to do whatever He's going to do, we are not made right before God. We are not justified before God, forgiven, because we are so great at pulling this off. And we see this in the life of Abram. Last week in chapter 15, we saw that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified before God by believing the Lord's promise that he would send the offspring who would be the savior of the world, that this child would come through the line of Abram, that this promise that the Lord's going to make Abram great and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in and through him is going to come through a particular son that will come eventually from Abraham's line. And Abram believed that, and he was justified by that. And we know that Messiah, that individual, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come many years later. Abram and the Old Testament saints were justified 
believing Christ, looking forward to his coming. They may not have known his name, that he would be Jesus of Nazareth, but they were looking to this promise that God had made. And so it was, Abram was justified by that faith. And yet as Abram continues throughout his days, we see he's still not perfect in all that he does, is he? And we see that, we've seen that already when they went down into Egypt, and we're going to see that again here in chapter 16. So let's read this together. Genesis chapter 16, we're going to cover verses 1 to 6 today, and then we'll come back and finish it next week. Genesis 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power, Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Waiting on the Lord is an essential part of the believer's life, of the Christian's life, of the saints of the Old Testament. The specific point of aggravation here in this text is that God has promised a son to Abram, and that There will be many sons who come from Abram, many offspring. He will be made into a great nation, and from that group will come the Messiah. And yet here we read of Sarai's continued barrenness. They were to wait upon the Lord to fulfill things in His way, in His timing. And in many ways, we deal with the same things. It's an essential part of the Christian life as we wait upon the Lord. We are waiting on Him for help in many specific things in life where we need the Lord's intervention. And we are also waiting on Him for the fulfillment and climax, the consummation of redemption, namely the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider these verses today, we are obviously looking at a failure to wait upon the Lord and his timing. And as we consider this failure of Abram and Sarah, I want to look at five warnings for our waiting. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are one who is waiting upon the Lord. And so we have five warnings here for our waiting. And the first one is be careful about the conclusions you draw from your life situation. Be careful about the conclusions you draw from your life situation. When genuine difficulty comes to us and hardship, we can sometimes then go on to draw up rather hasty, impatient conclusions 
and faithless, sinful plans. Uh, we, we, a legitimate and genuine difficulty comes, but we can then go and make some very bad conclusions from that. And that's precisely what we see happening here. At the beginning of chapter 16, again, we are reminded of Sarai's barrenness. In verse 1 it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So this verse sets up what is about to transpire. Sarah still has no children. She's still barren. And we are introduced here to this female Egyptian servant that she had. The Hebrew word there for servant is not the common word for slave, but it refers to a maidservant. This is a personal servant to Sarai. Hagar may well have been one of the people that were added to the number of people that were in Abram's household back in chapter 12 when they went to Egypt. You remember back in chapter 12, after we read of the Lord's promise to bring the Messiah through Abram's line, Abram goes on into Egypt with Sarai and he concocts this plan to have her pretend to be his brother so that if anyone wants her, they can take her and they won't kill them. And she ends up in Pharaoh's household and he deals well with Abram on account of that. You remember that story. We, we, we read back there in ch- chapter 12, verse 16, that uh, the Pharaoh dealt well with Abram on account of Sarai and he gave him all kinds of stuff, including, we even read, female servants. These were among the gifts that Pharaoh gave to Abram. And when he kicked him out of the land after realizing Abram had lied to him, uh, in verse 20, he sent him away with all of these goods that he had given to him. So they, that may well be uh, where Hagar enters into this family. And then in verse 2 we read, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, the first half of this verse is true enough, where Sarah acknowledges the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Bible does teach to us that God and his sovereignty ultimately is the one who opens and closes the womb. We see that explicitly in a number of places, uh, including the life of Hannah in 1 Samuel, who would eventually give birth to Samuel. Uh, we see that also, we'll see it again in, in later in Genesis with Rachel. We see this explicit language of God opening and closing the womb. And so Sarai, Sarai's statement here is true enough. That God and his sovereignty has made it so far that she has not been able to bear children. It's a true enough hardship. It's possible she's saying this with some measure of complaint in her voice. Uh, that maybe she thinks of this as some kind of an injustice. But... It is a very real thing. She has no children. She has been barren. It is a burden that she has had to bear to be without child. And likely, I would say almost certainly, this has been aggravated by the fact that God has made such wonderful and great promises to Abram that he's going to have all kinds of offspring, numbering the stars in the sky if you can number them. And ultimately the Savior, the Messiah, is going to come through your line. These are such great promises from God, and yet she's still barren at this point. I think we can at least uh, sympathize with that kind of trial. Ten years now they've lived in Canaan, and still not a child. So that's a difficult 
situation, to be sure. However, she draws a very bad conclusion from this about what they ought to do next, how to resolve this. Rather than waiting upon the Lord that the God who has promised this will somehow bring this about, though the odds look bleak, that God will do this in his way and in his timing, rather than wait upon the Lord to open her womb, she suggests an alternate plan. She says, go into my servant. That's a euphemism. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Just in case there's any uncertainty, that is a terrible plan. That is a terrible idea. Her situation was difficult. We can acknowledge that. But her, therefore, here's what we ought to do, was sinful. It was a bad conclusion from her situation. John Calvin writes, She saw that she was barren and had passed the age of bearing, and she inferred the necessity of a new remedy in order that Abram might obtain the promised blessing. In other words, she concludes from her situation that another remedy, another solution has to be the way forward here. I'm too old for this. I still have no children. God has made this promise. He hasn't delivered it yet. So we got to do something else here. And so she suggests Abram take Hagar. So this is a, a sinful inference, a sinful therefore. And of course, we're told here, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. When situations become hard and difficult, there are temptations, there come temptations with that to draw bad conclusions and then to lay sinful plans for how to move forward. There can be a tendency to panic and rationalize some sort of unlawful response, taking matters into our own hands, trying to resolve the situation quickly. There can be temptation to do that in a sinful manner. And people do this all the time. Uh, there's so many ways we could look at this. It's, I almost don't want to give an example because there's so many ways we could. But just I will give one other example. Uh, someone might, for example, lose their job. That's a difficult scenario. We have needs. We have to provide for family. We can all acknowledge that's not pleasant. That's difficult. But then how will you respond and what will you do? And some people can make bad conclusions out of that. Well, I I haven't found a job yet. Our savings are dwindling. I've put out applications. Nothing's come up. I, I need to start maybe fudging things on my application. I need to lie, perhaps, in order to try to get this. Some might even conclude they need to begin stealing. Lying on taxes, perhaps, or whatever it might be to try to get greedy, perhaps, in order to try and resolve the situation. Or we could be in a scenario like that or some other, and we conclude, because this is difficult, God has not resolved this right away in my timing, we conclude, therefore, he hates me. He's abandoned me. He's not with me anymore. Why would he do this to me? So we must be on guard in our waiting lest we would draw bad conclusions from our difficulties. We can and we should acknowledge trial, like Sarai waiting for this child. Acknowledge that this seems impossible from her position at this point. 
We can acknowledge great difficulty does come, but also continue on in patient waiting, not thinking sinful solutions are necessary in order to try to fix what is obviously some sort of mistake God has made. So, so notice what, one thing I'm not saying. Sometimes Christians can have this attitude that trials are not really a big deal. If you just believe the Lord, everything's just kind of fine, and we just have to sort of almost pretend like everything's always really great. And that's not what I'm saying. It can be very difficult. We face great trials in a sinful, fallen world. But even so, because if we think that way, then when trial comes, and everything should always be so great and wonderful, then when trial comes, what's our conclusion? Well, the Bible can't be right. God's abandoned me. This doesn't work for me. So we ready ourselves. Trial does come including upon the Lord's people. And so we wait upon Him. We call upon Him. We look to Him. Second warning for our waiting. Be guarded against pragmatism. Be guarded against pragmatism. This is related to the previous point. But this bad solution that's put forward here that they try to work out is a very pragmatic one. That is, their concern is for the right outcome. A son for Abram, hasn't God himself promised this? We need to get a son, that's the right outcome. But they have that in view at the expense of other important considerations. Such that they're willing to use ungodly means to get their end result. It's pragmatic. As long as it works in the end, then this is, this is Okay. They have the promise regarding Abraham's offspring and the normal way that that would occur through relations between Abram and Sarai. This isn't working and it would seem like an impossibility now. And so they propose this new solution that seems like it will work for them in order for Abram to get a son. At this point, it hasn't yet explicitly been promised that this child would come from Sarai. So maybe this is the way it's got to be. The end of it all, a son justifies the means they'll take to get there. Abraham taking another wife. They will try to lay hold of this promise, not by waiting upon the Lord to deliver, but by a sinful process instead. Matthew Henry in his commentary wrote concerning verse 2 that foul temptations may have very fair pretenses and be colored with that which is very plausible. Nature would seem to suggest Sarai can no longer bear children. Plus, this isn't as evident to us because this solution just seems completely bizarre for the most part to modern readers. At least to us, I trust it is. But this kind of practice here, this kind of surrogacy, motherhood and concubinage was a known practice in the ancient Near East specifically to rectify this kind of a situation in which this couple is childless. So in other words, this is something that the world was doing around them at the time. And so this seemed like a plausible solution to them. There's a fair pretense to it. Well, we need to be practical here. Sarah, I cannot bear children. This is, this is over. Nobody does it like this. So we got to go about it some other way. Here's what everyone else does about this.
And so they look to the world to see how they can handle it, to see what they can do. And it all seems very plausible in their minds. But in the end, it is still an act of adultery and a violation of God's design for marriage. And of course, as we'll see, as we read, the outcome is not at all what they were expecting or hoping for. Obvious tension and not the promised child, which we'll have to wait to get to that. But this issue of pragmatism is a very sore temptation for Christians in our world today. Uh, One to which churches have, by and large, just given themselves over to. I remember that the first seminary I attended before transferring elsewhere, there was a class I took called Methods and Models of Church Planting. Methods and Models of Church Planting. And they presented to us several models. And here's, here's, here's a bunch of different ways you could plant a church and different ways, different ways it could look, different things you could do. And essentially, we were told to just pick one. We were told, pick one that fits with your personality, that maybe fits the situation wherever you might be. Ah, there's a bunch of different ways. It could be different, but just pick something that works and go for it. The details aren't really that important. Pick what you think is going to work. That's pragmatism. We had to ask. We were talking about leaders in that class, church leaders, a generic term. What leaders are we talking about? Is this elders, deacons? What are we talking about? And he had, he had to think about it. He's like some other category. Okay, we're just making up new offices now. As long as it works, right? Many think that as long as people come into a church building, then who cares how it is we got them there? We've all seen the elaborate ways and methods Churches have tried to draw unbelievers in with. What's the problem? There aren't as many church people. People don't seem to care about the things of the Lord. Well, we've got to try and get their attention. It's a real situation, a grievous thing. Nobody seems to care about the things of the Lord. But then how do we respond to it? Well, here's a pragmatic way. Whatever you got to do to get them in the door. It's basically just using worldly methods to try to get a good result. As long as they come then the circus we put on to get them in the door is worth every penny that we might spend on it. But God has spoken about how we live our lives, about how we are to do things in the church. He is concerned with our methodology. He is concerned with how we worship him. The ends do not always justify the means that we would take to get there. This is how churches can end up with all manner of practices in the midst of their so-called worship services. Well, we'll bring in a painter. We'll bring in a drama. We'll have some sort of dance for everybody. We'll do some sort of prayer labyrinth. We'll have pictures of God, whatever someone might find useful. And if you object to any of those things, people just look at you and think, what's wrong with you? What do you care? People are coming. They like this kind of stuff. It seems to be helpful to them. What's your big problem with this? As long as they find it useful to them, we'll do whatever. This is just not what we find anywhere in Scripture, that we just are going to make things up about how we come to God. Ask King David and Uzzah if it matters how you bring the ark to Jerusalem. 
You remember that story from 2 Samuel chapter 6? This is a great day. They're bringing the ark to Jerusalem. They're recovering the ark. This is a wonderful thing. Let's throw that ark of the covenant on a cart, pull it behind a couple of beasts, and we'll just get it there. We'll have a lot of fun along the way. It tips over, carrying it the wrong way. Uzzah lifts it, sets out his hand to try to stop it. That seems like a reasonable act. And the Lord strikes him dead. And David's mad. He's angry about it, that the Lord broke out against them that way. God had given them clear commands in Scripture. Here's how you carry this thing. You treat this reverently. This was an important matter. It's not just any old way. We'll throw a party, throw it on whatever, and get it over here. God is holy. This is... We affirm as a church the regulative principle of worship, as it is often called. That, that is that God's word is to regulate what we are to do when we gather. It's why we, we read the scriptures, we pray, we sing, we preach the word, we administer the ordinances or the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we guard against ushering in just kind of whatever seems like a good idea to do, people might like. And of course, we can be pragmatic in so much of life. It's not just within the church. We see an end goal that seems right. Maybe it is, even is right. And we don't pay careful attention about how to get there. Not realizing that the how matters as well as the end. And we can find ourselves sinning even as we would pursue what seems to be a good end. This can happen in our efforts to provide for our families, raise our children well, and on. So we guard against pragmatism. Thirdly, test all things regardless of the source. Third warning, test all things regardless of the source. Discernment, being able to Discern between what is right and wrong, true and false, is necessary as we wait upon the Lord. Sin and temptation to sin will aggravate and complicate our waiting. Think of Job's wife. Job faces tremendous trial. Children put to death, killed, all that he has. Great grievous trials in his own body of sickness, ailments. He's waiting upon the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord. His wife says, curse God and die. In Genesis 16, Sarai is the one with the plan. And Abram receives it and agrees to it. I think it's probably unlikely that he would have agreed to this if it came from any other source. But when his wife, of all people, brings this to him... It seems to add plausibility to it. Here's what Matthew Henry writes. He says, The temptation is most dangerous, generally, when it is sent by a hand that is least suspected. It is our wisdom, therefore, to consider not so much who speaks as what is spoken. Right? That's, that's discernment. We judge the things spoken. We don't simply, we're not simply or primarily even passing judgment upon the one speaking but on the thing that is spoken. It's why we, we open Scripture and we test all things according to the Word. Even if it's coming, especially if it's coming from me, I'll say that, or from anybody else. 
It's often, it's not just, well, I trust that person, therefore, whatever they say, I'm just going to welcome in. They were right over here, therefore, they've got to be right over there. It's more complicated than that. In verse 2, it says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The way this is phrased and worded takes us back to Genesis chapter 3, where God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. So like Adam in Genesis 3, Abram here failed to lead his wife, but fell under the temptation that was brought to him through his wife. And so both are guilty here of grievous sin. As we live our lives anticipating the return of Christ, it involves discernment. It necessitates discernment. There is temptation from every quarter, from the world, temptation from other Christians, from within the church, from false brothers, and from our own loved ones as well. We see that here. And the Bible describes the Christian life as one of watching and waiting. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. He's telling us, be ready, watchfulness, dressed for action, ready for Christ's return. Elsewhere, he warned, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, in Genesis 16, Sarai is not a false prophet. I'm just saying that we are told over and over to be on guard and alert in the Christian life, whether it's false doctrine coming from some false prophet or whether it's some other temptation towards sin that could come from even another brother or sister in the Lord. We're to test all things. We compare the advice we receive with Scripture. We're always doing this. We're always testing all things. Fourthly, fourth warning, your timeline is not the Lord's timeline. This is maybe one of the more fundamental issues when it comes to this whole concept of waiting on the Lord. But the simple reality is we are the ones who submit to the Lord's ways and the Lord's timing, and it is not the other way around. We call out to the Lord. We pray for intervention. We pray for help. We pray for speedy help. We cry out, how long, O Lord? We read that in the Psalms, but we then submit ourselves to however it is the Lord will act in response to that. David would no doubt have preferred to not ever have had to hide in caves from Saul and wait for years to receive the throne that God had promised to him. But that, the fact that he was made to wait doesn't give him license to act wickedly, to try to do something wicked or unlawful or sinful in order to try to grasp that promise. And in fact, in the case of David, we see him refuse to take matters into his own hands with Saul. He goes out of his way to wait upon the Lord. His friends are saying, God has delivered Saul into your hands. Strike him down and take the throne. And he refused even to put Saul to death, even though Saul was the one pursuing him. 
Abram and Sarai were having clearly a difficult time with God's timing, not lining up with theirs. In verse 3, it says, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. That's a long wait. And it would be a number of years yet until she would give birth to Isaac. Another 15 years. That's about 25 years since entering the land of Canaan until she would have a child. Well, she, when she's well past childbearing age at that point. That's not on anyone's timeline but the Lord's. It was a test of faith. And while they, as I've said, believe the promise, they just, they're viewing the situation, they think it's got to be through a different way. It's got to be a different path. It's got to be the Hagar path. Since they can't see how God could deliver at this point that Sarah might have a baby. We talked Wednesday, if you were here, about how God is eternal. And we read in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. And the context there is of the return of the Lord Jesus one day. But the fact that the reality that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day applies to all of our waiting. God is eternal. He's not bound by time as you and I are. He is above it, if you will. It's his creation. So things might seem slow to us, but it's not so in God's providence. We experience difficulty and we want the trial to be over now. We bargain with God. I'll just learn this lesson, whatever it is, teach it to me. I'm going to learn it and then you can lift your hand from me. You can make this trial go away. I think I've, I think I've figured it out. Now you can make this better. And it just does not always work that way. We don't always know why he does what he does or when he's going to lift the burden or lift the difficulty. But we guard our response, not rushing to unbiblical and ungodly conclusions. It may seem that God's face is hidden, but he does not leave or forsake his people. Experience suggests maybe God has abandoned me because of difficulty, difficult times, but we stand upon the truth of his word. We, we have a, a more solid foundation to stand upon than what things seem like to me from my very limited perspective. It seems like this trial has gone on too long. But with the, the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. We, we don't know what he's doing in this trial, perhaps, but we trust that this is in his hands. And we have his promises that he, he obviously has sanctifying work yet to do in us. And we wait upon the Lord for that renewal of joy and that renewal of gladness. Sometimes the Lord will act quickly as we would have it in answer to our prayers and we praise him for that. Other times it's not so. We submit to the reality that God's ways are above our ways and they're ultimately beyond searching out. We don't know all the ways that he is working out his will when we are being made to wait. And we may never see it super clearly 
in this lifetime. So we wait patiently for the Lord and continue to call out to him in humble supplication. And the fifth warning, the final warning, it's really more of an admonition than a warning. Fifthly, own your sins, repent, and renew your waiting upon the Lord. Grave sin is committed in these verses. Though we don't, in these verses, see acknowledgement of that. We don't see repentance of it here. God's design for marriage is, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, it is, it is laid out in Genesis chapter 2, and it stipulates that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and it is to be for life. That's the design. That's the good design of the Lord. This is therefore, what we read here, is a corruption of that. A one commentator by the name of Kenneth Matthews, he, he explains, he says, Concubinage involved a husband who added secondary wives, usually for purposes of procreation. Concubines held an inferior status to the primary wife. They are portrayed in the Bible as a servant to the husband's primary wife, but above the status of a slave. And this certainly describes what we're seeing here with Hagar. Uh, She is said to be given to Abram as a wife in verse 3. But as the story continues, we'll see she never reaches equal standing with Sarai in the household. Even God is still going to refer to Sarai as her mistress. In verse 4, it says, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Hagar conceives. Well, well this was the plan, right? This is the plan they concocted all along. But surprise, tensions arise within the house. Uh, Things don't work out as they had envisioned. It says Hagar viewed Sarai now with contempt. That is, Sarai grew small or dishonorable in Hagar's eyes. This may have involved outright scorn. Maybe she was taunting like uh, Peninnah did with Hannah back in 1 Samuel or later in 1 Samuel. Perhaps Hagar is now exalting herself above Sarai, seeing herself as the blessed of God and raised above she who was her mistress. And so Sarai's response comes in verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Again, their worldly pragmatism has not yielded the result they were looking for. And reason would seem to be out the window here in what we just read in verse 5. There's no lowliness here in recognition of Sarai's ill-conceived plan that's now the cause of her grief. Her plan has not gone as desired, but rather than owning her sins here and repenting of it, she blames Abram, and she appeals to God to judge between us. That is surely rash to make that appeal, given that this was her plan. Not that Abram's done right by her, but John Calvin asks, what else is this than to call down destruction on her own head to make this appeal? But Abram himself, he's not guiltless either. His response comes in verse 6. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power to do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now that reads to me like Abram has checked out here. That he's just, do, do what you want. She's in your power, you handle it. Now it could be that this should be translated as him telling to her to do what is good in your sight. It could be that he is reasserting Sarai's primary position, and so she has the authority, the right in the house to, to correct Hagar. Some, some do, many actually commentators do take it that way, but I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced. But admittedly, I don't really know what the playbook is here. When your primary wife and your secondary wife are arguing, I don't really know what exactly you're supposed to do. But we definitely see Sarai dealing harshly with her and Abram not stopping it. The situation exists because of Sarai and Abram's sin. But we see the blame shifting occurring here. It's similar to what we saw in the garden. Eve blames the serpent. Adam's blaming Eve and so on. We don't see in these verses repentance and humility before God about this. In fact, even in chapter 17, when God is going to speak to Abram and he's going to promise this offspring again, it's going to be through Sarah, your wife. Abram's response is, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael's the offspring that Hagar is going to, to, to bear. So even later, he's still thinking, no, no, not that. Here's the child, that he would be the child of promise. And God says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. There's a number of things here, but we we are obviously reminded first that when we see this kind of behavior in these heroes of the faith, Father Abraham, this great man of faith, We are reminded that this book is a book about God's grace and God's mercy towards sinners. We can look at this and acknowledge that this is not okay. This is not right. This is sinful. We don't have to cover for their actions here. Because we understand that God justifies and saves as a gift of his grace to sinners who don't earn it by their great works, but who believe in God's promise to justify the ungodly who look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to justify sinners, guilty men before God. By dying for our sins, having them placed upon himself, we affirm Abram and Sarai's sins would be placed upon the Son of God and he would die for them on the cross and satisfy God's wrath against these two for their sins. When we are confronted by our sins, as those who believe this, that Christ died for our sins, our faith is in him, our trust is in him, we trust his righteousness covers us. It's his righteousness in which we stand. When we continue to live out our days awaiting his return, And we are confronted by our own sins. We're dealing with the consequences that our own sins have brought about. It is for us to just own that. 
to welcome God's word to expose that, to confess that to God, to confess that to any that it's appropriate to confess it to, to repent of it, and to rest in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is going to happen a lot where we are faced with our, our sins. Right, first John talks about this, but walking in the light, that's what it's talking about. We're not hiding things before the Lord. And we don't have to hide anything because we're not going to find out anything truly surprising as if, oh, I didn't know I was still a sinner. We might find it surprising just how sinful we are. I suppose we could say that. That can sometimes surprise us. But we're not trying to earn our standing before God such that we've got to pretend we're better than we are. I can't acknowledge this sin or else it means maybe I'm on the outside. I can't acknowledge that I've got sin in my life. People do this all the time. They play games with God. They try to pretend they're better than they are. They lower God's law as if God's law doesn't demand perfection of humanity. We don't want the word of God to search out the dark corners of our hearts, the things that we would rather hide. But such people may not be understanding God's grace properly, may not be understanding the righteousness of Christ that is credited to sinners upon faith in Christ, that that's the righteousness in which we stand. That God freely and graciously saves sinners in this way. And so we don't have to be those who then pretend we've got it all together, pretend we are not without sin, pretend that doesn't really convict me. We bring it to the light, we confess it to God, We might mourn its existence, but we rejoice then in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We own our sins, we repent of it, and we renew our waiting upon the Lord. We are living in light of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of New Testament scriptures, I won't read them now, but that talk about waiting in this very light, that we are those who are awaiting. We're waiting our Lord's return. We live in light of that day. We wait for it with patience. We wait for the hope of righteousness eagerly. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And we wait for that day. And we read from 1 Corinthians 1, 6. I said I wasn't going to read them, but we're kind of doing that. They're good. 1 Corinthians 1, 6 to 9. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, he's writing to, the, to a church. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are like those, those saints of old. We are waiting, we are looking forward to Christ's return. And so much of our sinning 
arises out of trying to grab some counterfeit version of the eternal pleasures and glory that we are promised on that day when our Lord returns. We reach out for some lesser counterfeit version of it. Some sinful stand-in. Let us be on guard. Let us renew our anticipation of the great day of the Lord and wait for it patiently, expectantly, and by God's grace as uprightly as possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks. You are holy and good and righteous in all that you do. We thank you that you have sent Christ Jesus to deal with our sins. And such is your love and your grace towards sinners. Father, I pray that we would all rest our hope in what Christ has accomplished and look away from our own efforts to be good before you. We cannot justify ourselves in that way. And Father, as we read these verses and we marvel at the sins of such great believers such as Abram and Sarai, Father, may we not look at it with contempt or look at it with arrogance, thinking that we somehow are are not great sinners. But Father, may we be reminded of your grace to Abram and to Sarai and to all who look to you in faith and be encouraged and strengthened by that. And Father, let, let it be that we would receive these warnings about how we live out these days awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would look to have our minds renewed by your word and that we would look to, to walk before you in holiness and uprightness. Father, make us eager to confess our sins when they are brought to our attention by your word or by a faithful brother or sister who would speak to us about these things. Father, give us humility as we go about our days. And Father, for all who are waiting upon you in a time of trial even now, I pray for faith. I pray for hope. Father, that that you would enable us to stand on the truths of your word where we find sure foundation, that we would not put stock in how we might feel today or how we might feel tomorrow or what our experience might seem to suggest to us, but place our faith on the solid rock of your word. So help us in these things, Father. We thank you that you are faithful. And we trust that you will see us through to the end. So we praise you together in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.